0: Enrollment is open for Thomas' upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll, or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Our guest for today's episode is Gaber Mate. Dr. Gaber Mate is a Hungarian-Canadian physician, author, renowned speaker, and expert on a range of topics, including addiction, trauma, stress, and childhood development. He is the best-selling author of books such as When the Body Says No and The Myth of Normal. We hope you enjoy this conversation.
1: Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit 2022. My name is Thomas Hübel, and I'm the convener of the summit. And I'm very delighted to sit here again uh, with Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor, very warm welcome this year again. It's nice to be back with you. Yeah, I was looking forward to our conversation because your new book, like the myth of normal is something that I'm deeply interested in. And I think we we share like a passion there. So let's, uh, I would love to go deeper with that. And uh, maybe to start us off when. The myth of normal. What, what what does that mean? What what is normal? And and how do we normalize things and how does this relate to our health?
2: Right. So we tend to believe that what is normal is healthy and natural. So as doctors, we talk about a normal range of conditions. So our blood pressure has to be within a normal range or blood acidity or temperature. They all have to be within a normal range. And so outside that range, we're no longer helpful, uh, healthy. So we tend to identify normal with healthy and natural, which is in certain areas like the ones I just described is a valid correlation. But we tend to generalize that normality onto life in general.
3: So we tend to think that whatever is normal is healthy and natural. But To give you um, a
2: specific example, a very disturbing and fanciful example,
3: but if everybody in Vancouver where I live mistreated their dogs, then mistreating your dog would be normal. You'd be abnormal if you didn't mistreat your dog. But would it be healthy and
2: natural? No, it wouldn't be either of those things. A lot of the conditions that we've become used to in modern society are normal in the sense that they represent the average. We get so used to them, we think this is life, but they're neither healthy or natural. And what I'm saying about it is our culture has become so divorced from the actual needs of human beings that those things we consider normal are neither healthy or natural. So that normality becomes a myth. Number one and number two, that the responses to those abnormal conditions like addictions, like depression, like mental health conditions, like a lot of physical illnesses are actually normal responses to abnormal circumstances. So the abnormality is not in an individual. The abnormality is in the circumstances to which the individual pathology is a normal response. And to give you one just very salient example... One study showed that the more experience of racism a Black American woman has to endure, the greater her risk for asthma. So, the more stress of racism there is, the more her lungs are likely to be inflamed and the airways constricted. Are we talking about abnormality in the individual? Or are we saying that's actually a normal response to an abnormality in the culture, which is the stresses imposed by racism? So this is what I mean by the myth of normal.
1: That's amazing, because that's exactly why we do this summit, is to show that also trauma exists in individuals, but not only, it's it's a kind of systemic, it's a systemic thing that we are facing. And within that systemic structural manifestation of trauma, we are navigating in a very limited range. And then it's exactly what you said. And so... So how, how when, we, when we now look at health or when we look at, um, as you said, well, like a healthy, you, you used the word natural before. Maybe you want to speak a bit about healthy and natural. You put these two words together. Maybe you can speak a bit about that. Sure. So every creature, including human beings, evolved
2: in a certain natural environment and we adapted, our our, our evolution itself was a series of adaptations to that natural environment. So if you wanted to study a zebra, would you study the zebra in a zoo behind a cage? If you wanted to understand the natural, the true nature of the zebra, where would you study the zebra? You study out in the savannah or wherever he or she lives in its natural environment. Human beings evolved over millions of years, as we know over hundreds of thousands of years. And even in the existence of our own species, Homo sapiens, we've been around for 150, 200,000 years. For the vast majority of that time, we lived out in nature, in small band hunter-gatherer groups. That's how we evolved. That's where nature was formed in response to nature.
3: So studying human beings today, and
2: deriving conclusions about human nature from studying human beings in civilization, conditions of civilization, is like studying zebras in a zoo. We're so divorced from our natural environment. A civilization, which of course has many achievements, advances to its credit, going back to ancient times, is a new blip in human life. So even in our own species, if we've existed for a whole hour, then civilization... Is
3: about five minutes of that hour, five or 10 minutes. And in those conditions of nature, our essence was to live connected to nature, to live connected to each other in a communal collaborative setting where children
2: were always with their parents, where children's needs were not frustrated, but they were met, and where It wasn't this belief that life is all about individual people competing aggressively and selfishly against one another. That's not how we evolved. So modern society has come as far away from our natural way of being as possible. And that invariably imposes pathology on people because our needs are no longer being met. So the real challenge that we face as a civilization, I'd say under globalized capitalism, is the world civilization is, can we create societies and ways of being that incorporate the achievements and the findings and benefits of modern science and modern technology and modern forms of social organization with our evolution determined needs and nature. So that's the challenge that we face. Under present society, that challenge is woefully um,
1: underappreciated,
2: and this is why there's so much suffering.
1: So, when um, when I look at the at the process of, a, let's say, an India a traumatized individual client, and and you see different symptoms emerge. So behind those symptoms, there are kind of deeper underlying processes that are that are responsible for the symptoms. And what you described now that we kind of got more and more dissociated in our civilization from nature, what's that a process of? Like, what's that a symptom of? What's the underlying process? Like... How do you see the development? How come that we are for such a long time uh, in alignment with nature and then in the last five minutes of the hour we jump out of alignment and whatever, we are kind of a bit disconnected from from our natural environment. Can you speak a bit to to how that starts? Well, I can talk about how it starts historically
2: and I can talk about how it starts on an individual level. You know, historically speaking, um, what happened was that as soon as we developed agriculture and we began to develop um,
3: accumulated wealth, then uh, there began a process of society dividing into
2: classes, those that controlled and those that were controlled. Hunter-gatherer groups tend to be fairly egalitarian. even if it is the chief. The chief doesn't control everybody. The chief has a certain purpose, but he's under the umbrella of the community. Once you start having private property and wealth and ownership, and then there's the attachment to wealth and to power, then what you have is the imbalance of the suppression of the matriarchy in favor of the patriarchy so that there's a real imbalance between the, the feminine and the masculine. What we call feminine and what we call masculine are both aspects of every human being. But under civilization, increasingly, the matria or the, the feminine is suppressed and the masculine is emphasized. Now you get the governing of the intellect over the emotions rather than a healthy balance between the two. You have social inequality, and then eventually the actual enslavement of human beings in the service of others, uh, the exploitation and oppression of certain groups in favor of other groups of elites, and so on. So that's what happened on the um, social historical level, and that has continued. You know, it has taken different forms. You know, in ancient Greece you had slaves, in ancient Rome you had slaves. Uh, then you had the upper classes, then you had the common people in between. In modern society, there's been a gradual exacerbation of inequality, so that even under COVID, inequality greatly increased. The people that had got a lot more, and the people that didn't lost even more. So that dispersive inequality, which has been a feature of civilization, has become grossly exaggerated to the point where something like eight individual own as much as the bottom half of human beings in terms of wealth, I mean, that's incredible. And that's going to have huge impacts. So that's on the social, economic, political level. On the individual level, what happens is that human beings are born with certain needs, and in fact, certain expectations. It's not even that we're born with certain expectations. We are an expectation. So. Jean Liedloff, in her wonderful book, The Continuum Concept, talks about um, lungs are an expectation for oxygen. In other words, lungs don't expect oxygen. They are an expectation for oxygen. Lungs evolved because there was oxygen around. If there was no oxygen, there'd be no lungs. Human beings are born as expectations. For what? Unconditional loving acceptance. Continuous presence and contact and attachment with nurturing adults. The capacity to experience all our emotions, all our emotions from pain to grief, to anger, to anxiety,
3: to, to joy. Um, we're expectations for free play out in nature. Now, the more these expectations that we're programmed with via evolution are frustrated, the more traumatized we're gonna be, even if we're not treated badly. So that modern society,
2: because of the parenting advice we give to parents, I could step back a moment and say, this begins in the uterus. The the infant in the womb has certain expectations, is certain expectation for a stress-free environment. Mm -hmm. Now, the more women are stressed during pregnancy, the more chance of their kids are having mental health problems later on and behavior problems and learning problems. The more animals are stressed during pregnancy under laboratory conditions, the more their infants are likely to become addicted to substances as adults. So already in the womb, we have certain expectations. Then we are an expectation for a certain kind of birth. Now, in the modern world, internationally, the cesarean section rate is not close to 40%. It should be around 10 or 15%. 10 or 15% of the time, cesarean sections are essential to save the mother's or the, and or the baby's life and health. Beautiful, modern advance. 40% is a heavy-handed interruption and interferes with the natural process. Birth is a process that is designed by nature to not just to get the baby out of the womb, but to prepare the baby for life outside the womb. Natural birth releases certain hormones in mother and baby that prepares them for that bonding relationship. Now, again, in a certain percentage of cases, it's absolutely life saving to have the availability of expert medical intervention. But to have it like that more about close to half the time now, That's an interference with natural expectation for a process that was designed beautifully by nature. That's just pregnancy and birth. Then I can talk about all the ways that parents are given the wrong advice about how to raise children and the stresses under which parents have to raise children. So even if conditions are not what you might say are overtly traumatic, children are still being wounded by the lack of natural development that this society denies them. So this is a condition that beats trauma on a massive level, even if we avoid war and abuse and neglect and sexual exploitation, which, of course, are very prevalent. We're living in a traumatizing society. Mm
1: -hmm. And, And you're speaking about... one side of the coin that is the needs that we have that need to be met as we grow up the other side of the coin maybe you can speak to that a bit too is like every one of us i believe one of our needs or expectations is our creative output So there's what needs to come in and there's what needs to go out. And maybe you can speak a bit to like what it means to have the freedom of one's creative expression in the world, or if that's kind of boxed in and we we can't give our contribution to the world because we are kind of stuck in circumstances. So maybe you can speak to that part too.
2: Absolutely. So I talked about the needs of children, but as adults, we also have needs these are needs that are also ingrained in us to revolution as part of our nature these are not luxuries one of our needs is connection and contact with other human beings this society isolates the the incidence of loneliness is going up and up and up and up dramatically to the point that britain has had to appoint a minister for loneliness that's how bad it's become what you mentioned about creativity <clears throat> we have a need for meaning and purpose in our lives that's an actual need when that need is frustrated people suffer now what happens is for a lot of people is that they have this and and, and when the bible says that uh, we created in an image of god we are created in an image of god, god the creator we are meant to be creators ourselves not uh, automatic producers of goods or products or behaviors but we're really creative agents where it's our vision and our creative dynamic that brings forth something new in the world. That could be different for you, and it is different for you than it is for me. And, and, and it's a very individual thing, but it's, it's a need that we have. Now, modern society, in many ways, suppresses people's authentic selves, expects people to fit in with other people's expectations expects us to work very hard to be um, acceptable and admirable in the eyes of others, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their own creative urges. Our creative urges and our authentic selves might want to lead in a totally different directions. But if the threat is that if we follow our own inner guidance, we won't be so acceptable to society or to other people. In that tension between what I call authenticity versus attachment, very often the authenticity loses out so that we can stay connected. But that means we're giving up a part of ourselves. And that's a huge stress. And that stress shows up in both physical and mental illness, or alienation,
3: or a sense of frustration, or a sense of what is my life all about anyway, you know? And so now we can use that frustration if that frustration shows up
2: rather than being frustrated about being frustrated. We can say, oh, what is my system organism trying to tell me? Mm-hmm. How have I strayed from being authentic towards seeking acceptance and attachment at all costs? So it's a, it, it, it can be a creative tension, but at the base of it, is what you allude to, which is that our need to be our, our authentic creators in our lives, not just in our lives, but of our lives.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, I completely agree. And in my understanding, we can take it even a step further and can say, okay, another need is the need of our soul like it's it's kind of a kind of a spiritual route and in many ways we could say we created at least in the west uh, like a society where often spirituality is almost discriminated against like it's something that's being ridiculed or uh, not you know people do this outside of their offices and then they are CEO or then they go like do whatever they do but they do it secretly so um, maybe you can speak a bit to how like a kind of a hurt of our of our deepest spiritual nature is also part of um, what you're talking about.
2: My second to last chapter is actually on spirituality. Good. Okay. Nice. I know, Thomas, that you have pursued uh, spiritual practices. If there's any comparison that can be made, much more... Um, deeply than i have i mean you devoted more of your life to that than i have we we work in different realms um so you probably have a deeper answer to your question than i might be able to give you but but for me despite my very rationalistic mind and training and even my prejudice against
3: religion i say prejudice based on my childhood experience because when i was growing up uh barely having survived the holocaust um i often talk about this
2: there was a joke in eastern in communist eastern europe where i grew up there used to be a joke which said uh, you could be honest and intelligent or a member of the communist party in fact you could be any two of those three things but not three at the same time if you're honest and intelligent you couldn't join the party if you were honest and joined the party you couldn't be very intelligent and so on now i had the same attitude towards God. The God they were teaching me about, that God was omniscient, all good, and omnipotent, all good, all seeing, and all powerful. I rebelled against that, because if God was all good and all powerful, he couldn't know very much, because if he did, he wouldn't allow my grandparents to have perished in Auschwitz, or almost sent me there as an infant. Um, if God was all good and all-knowing, he can't be very powerful. Because if he was powerful, he would have stopped it. So I was really hostile to this whole idea of the God that they were selling me. It just didn't make any sense to me. But I also noticed in myself a real anger whenever even God came up. Now, why was I angry? I could have dismissed with those ideas. What was the anger? Because I so badly wanted to believe in something greater than myself. That was a need of mine. That need to connect with something larger and to be a part of it and actually to surrender to it, that's a need of human beings. That's as much of a need as the need to have meaning and purpose and their creativity. That's our nature, I've come to understand as an adult, you know? And um, in apropos to what you said about this, we go to work, we do this. I spoke to this spiritual teacher and meditation teacher, I think you know, Jack Cornfield. And uh, here's what Jack said, he said, we live in a world that's split, Jack Cornfield told me, so our psyche is split. We make money by going to work, and we take care of our bodies in the gym, and we maybe take care of our psyche a little bit in therapy, and we do the arts when we go to a concert, and we do the sacred by going to the church or the synagogue or the mosque or something like that. They're all in compartments, as if the sacred was somehow separate from the work we do or the music that we make. So even in this alienating and and splitting society, even our spiritual nature is split out from our everyday activity. And I think that's what your question implies.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. When we look now, so we, we looked at the few areas uh, where basically like the systemic aspect or kind of a distorted systemic aspect that we all co-create somehow, because there is not like a systemic aspect outside of me. Hmm. So there's always like an interdependence that all of, I often say, there's no individual shadow. There's only a shared investment into our shadow cooperation in the world. So every one of us carries, of course, individual, let's say, shadow our unconscious parts, but there, it's not that my unconscious can exist without you, you yeah. know, without anybody around me. It doesn't, doesn't work. So when we all, when we say now, okay, the situation that we are in is a co-creation of all of us. So there is not been this system just outside, it's in all of us. So what, what do you suggest also maybe in your book or how do you look at it? Well, what options do we have? And maybe before that, The last thing that uh, I wanted to ask you is, capitalism as as a basic driver of our world, like how does that fit into it? And then maybe to look what are our options. Sure, well,
2: the thing about capitalism is sort of the latest iteration of what we call civilization. And it's a globalized one. So it's pretty much conquered the world. Um, which is why we're seeing that all the ailments that are associated with it are also become globalized. Uh, obesity has become a huge problem in China mm-hmm. since China has joined the globalized capitalist world. ADHD, which didn't use, used to exist in China, now has become a public health concern. So um, now the one thing where I'll give you a little bit of a pushback, I quite agree that we all co-create even if unconsciously, our mutually shared situation. But we don't quite do it on an equal basis. There are certain people that do have a lot more power than others. Like somebody, those eight people that own half half the wealth in the world, they have a lot more power. It's not quite accurate to say that I'm just as powerful as they are in influencing social conditions. You know, when some somebody can decide like that, I don't want to throw ten thousand people out of work, or I'm gonna post certain work conditions or social conditions. There's extraordinary power imbalance in this world, and we have to recognize that. Mm-hmm. It's not, not that we all are quite co-created to the same degree. Having said that. To the extent that we buy into it, to the extent that we accept it as this is normal, this is natural, it can't be another way, we're complicit or not even complicit, we're participating. So, interestingly enough, in in, in, in my last chapter, I, I referred to the great psychologist Abraham Maslow, whose work I know you're familiar with. And Maslow looked at self-actualized human beings. And actually, if, if you don't mind if I find that passage, because it's almost on the last page of the book. And it, And he talks about this very issue, and um, if I just may have the luxury of quoting from my own book here, uh, I'll I'll read you a paragraph.
3: As it turns out, well, let me tell you one more thing. This is from the last chapter. Uh, um, Adolf
2: Eichmann, the Nazi functionary, who was sort of the engineer of the genocide, and he's the one who sent my... uh, grandparents to Auschwitz and almost
3: sent me to Auschwitz as an infant. I can tell you an interesting story about that. But when he was brought to trial in Israel, he was examined by a bunch of psychiatrists. You know what they said about him? They said he was perfectly normal. And they said that.
2: They found his whole psychological outlook, including his relationship with his wife and children, his mother and father, his brothers and sisters and friends, was not only normal, but most desirable.
3: So a lot of the most horrific acts in the world, worldwide, are committed by people that are considered the most normal in their societies. Now, as compared to
2: that, there's Abraham Maslow, he said, as it turns out. It is often individuals who define conventional normality who are the healthy ones. The psychologist, Abraham Maslow, made the investigation of self-actualization, the attainment of authentic satisfaction, not based on external valuation, his life work. And he said, a study of people healthy enough to be self-actualized revealed that they were not, quote, well-adjusted in the naive sense, of approval, of identification with the culture, these healthy people they suggested had a complex relationship with their much less healthy culture. So these people chose authenticity versus fitting in. As a result, they were much more creative, much more self-actualized. They were not not automatic rebels. They were not sort of political enraged activists. But when it came to values, they knew who they were and they knew how to diverge from the values of their most less healthy culture. So that's at the level on the individual level or on the group level when you and I work with groups is is, is, is is the guidance as to how you find what's authentically true for you, even if, and especially if it contradicts the values of the very unhealthy culture that you belong to. So it's really of being in the world, but not of it as a phrase that I'm you used quite a bit but that's that's the essence of it Mm. and it's difficult because it goes against our programming and it goes against social expectation
1: what i like is the distinction that you make is the total conformist and then there is but then there is a kind of a rebellion against that and then there is another like self-actualized is actually something else there's a freedom that allows us to choose differently and that choice is really that's very powerful what you're saying i like it very much and i would just want to underline that that's different than being against something is choosing something else and and i think that's very powerful and so when you when you when we look now because in in my understanding the question is if of course, there are power structures and so on. But let's stay with the part of all of us that participates in some way in this kind of world. And like, when we bring in trauma now, how how is the dimension of individual, ancestral, and systemic trauma now part of the whole the whole situation that we are in? I know you you dealt with trauma for many, many, for a long time, and uh, like when you see, when you work with clients or when you work with groups, how does the trauma and the unconscious trauma component that is maybe systemic add to what you laid out now through the entire conversation?
2: I'll, I'll give you one specific example and let's see if that approaches what you're inquiring about. So the situation of women, for example. Now, women have 80% of autoimmune disease. Women have double the risk of PTSD. They're much more likely to take antidepressant medications than men. Now, mm-hmm. is that an individual pathology on a part of half the population? Or is it a manifestation of the sensual suppression of the feminine mm-hmm. and the subjugation of the feminine to the masculine under conditions of patriarchy? And what you find with our immune disease, it has a lot to do with self-suppression. So that very often, the woman gets autoimmune disease because this society expects women to suppress their own healthy anger. And like under COVID, for example, um, there was a study in the States that showed that women took on the stresses of their families and their husbands, and they felt guilty that they
3: couldn't ease the stresses of their families. Now, There was another study in Canada that showed that after
2: open-heart surgery, men recover better than women do. Then they looked at what happens. What happens is that after a man has open-heart surgery, he goes home and gets taken care of by his wife. After a woman has open-heart surgery, she goes back and becomes the caretaker again. So this automatic suppression of the feminine or the enrollment of the feminine culturally in the service of the what we think is the masculine is a
3: source of pathology in women. But that has to do with centuries old, thousands of years old suppression of the feminine. So this shows up in a very practical sense in both the
2: physiology and in the mental condition of half the population. It's collective. it It goes back to the burning of witches. It goes back to the to the to the rape. it It goes back to the uh, collective traumatization of a gender-based traumatization of a certain part of the population. So in the Western world, we tend to individualize this and pathologize it. You know, um, there was a study, Thomas, that showed that.
3: Women with symptoms of PTSD have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer, showing the unity of mind and body. But that stressing of women isn't just an individual. By the way, I'm not arguing that men are not stressed. I'm just
2: talking about a certain dynamic here. We're talking about long-term collective hundreds of years of trauma and cultural programming. Now, when that intersects with race, for example, then you get the situation where Black or colored or non Caucasian women have multiple the risk of autoimmune disease, even higher than Caucasian women. And in Canada, an Indigenous woman has six times the rate of, of, of rheumatoid arthritis than that of a non Indigenous, non woman. This is in a population that never used to have rheumatoid arthritis. What we're looking at here is just one example is the manifestation of collective trauma showing up in the physiology of individuals.
1: No, that's beautiful. Exactly. And um and that and, and what is beautiful, what I hear through your words, is that individual health doesn't make sense without the collective environment that individual health is part of, because they are not separate. It's it's one condition. And and so. I think that's a very powerful because that's what I sometimes call interdependent medicine, but it's it's how do we how do we dispel or melt that kind of hyper individualism and take more and more in account what you said right now. I think that's very powerful.
3: Well
2: exactly. I mean let me uh, first of all when you said interdependent, the Buddha talked about the interdependent core rising of phenomena. Without the many that can't be the one, without the one that can't be a many. That's what the Buddha said. Yeah. No. Then there's this, uh, I have a, have a book on my, my uh, desk here. It's called uh, Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story. And it's uh, by an American um, med- uh, physician and psychologist called Louis Mel Madrona, who's of native Lakota Sioux tradition. And Louis told me that in the Lakota tradition, Apropos to what you just said, when somebody gets sick, the community says, thank you. Your illness is manifesting the dysfunction of our whole community.
3: Exactly.
1: Exactly.
2: So your healing is our healing. You just happen to be the sensitive one who is manifesting something that's true about all of us. Now, the strange thing, or maybe not so strange thing, is that's ancient traditional wisdom but it's also modern science. Modern science has shown the interdependence of the individual, bio- I call it interpersonal biology. Our mutual friend, Daniel Siegel, talks about interpersonal neurobiology. Well, as a physician, I take that a step further and I say, not just the neurobiology is, interdepend- is, is, is interpersonal, so is our biology in general, which means that illness in individual is a manifestation of a collective phenomenon. So that what you call interdependent medicine is not only traditional wisdom, but maddeningly, it's also the latest modern science. And I say maddeningly, because even though the science is there, medical practice ignores it.
1: And that's always like how long it takes until the newest insights seep into yeah. the mainstream culture. I mean, that's uh, that's, that's often like... Or
2: well, in this case, the oldest insights. Yeah, exactly. The- I would have said it 2,500
1: years ago, you know. So maybe that's still the future for most of us. (laughs) And uh, I wanted, it's so rich, and I have so many (laughs) ideas when we we speak. Um, What are ways, because in one way, I believe radical relationality, which means sense-making, like cognition and sensing unified, is, I believe, one one remedy for what what we talk about. Because in a way, we need more and more collective awareness of these collective structures that you're talking about. And the question is how, how to induce this growing collective. And your book is one way to do that. But maybe you can speak a little bit, how do we wake up collectively? of the, like, within those collective structures that we were all born into. Like, that kind of collective field conditioned every one of us. So there is, by nature, part of it is invisible to us, given the conditioning. So what can we do in order to take a little bit what's, like, the last 150 years of individual therapy and all kinds of stuff, like, how do we take that to, to a collective level? Maybe you can speak a bit to that. Well, I mean,
2: first of all, I have to confess, I don't have a totally satisfactory answer to that because I don't know how to wake people up. You know, like, you know, the the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You can't even lead him to water. (laughs) And uh, the great uh, baseball player and, and manager Yogi Berra had this great saying, he said, If the people don't want to go to the ball game, there's nothing you can do to stop them. (laughs) 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 You can't force people into awakening. That's a process. Now, for me, I know you had a certain process of awakening um, that was really a spiritual process and you came to certain realizations. I think our route might have been a bit different.
3: In my case, I didn't have such a kind of illumination i had to suffer and
2: uh and and i think a lot of people do so uh, i quote the great the greek playwright aeschylus who says that the way the master or the god created us we have to suffer into truth Mm -hmm. so i think for a lot of people it's suffering that is the wake-up call i don't recommend it but I know that for a lot of people, it's a mental health crisis. It's a personal crisis, like a divorce. It's, it's depression, or it's a physical disease that forms the impetus. So that it provides the impetus for the wake up. So that the first thing I say to people is when things go wrong in your life, I say wrong in quotation marks, rather than just see it as a problem to get rid of, just ask the question, what, do you, what is life trying to teach me here? And in a book, I have a chapter called Diseases Teacher. Uh, I don't recommend disease as a way of learning, but if it shows up, there's often learning that can be gained by looking at it honestly. And if that applies on an individual level, It also applies on a social level. So the world has just been through, in fact, hasn't completed going through this COVID pandemic.
3: Now, we can look upon that as just as a terrible thing to get rid of. And of course, it's perfectly natural
2: that we want to get over it and past it. And I'm very grateful. Personally, whatever people think of vaccines or so on, I'm grateful for
3: for them personally, because in my medical view, they've saved lives. But that's not enough, because what did COVID could also be a
2: wake-up call. If a disease can be a wake-up call on the individual level, the pandemic could be a wake-up call on the collective level. Now, what did we learn during COVID? Things that we should have learned a long time ago. One is we're all connected as human beings. And then when we lose that connection, we suffer. That's a big teaching. But well, the question is, can we that carry that teaching forward post-COVID, or do we go back to the normal that existed before COVID of disconnection and isolation and aggressive, um, selfish relationships? That's one teaching. Another teaching from COVID is COVID wasn't an equal opportunity invader. Certain people were much more prone to fall
3: victims to it. People that were the elderly who lived, lived in neglected, isolated conditions. People of color. People of lower socioeconomic classes. Are we going to allow that learning to help us create a more equitable, less discriminatory, in a racial sense, society? Um, COVID taught us what 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 like there was a certain degree of cooperation
2: internationally when it came to confronting COVID. Not as much as it should have been. But there was a lot of exchange of information. How do we
3: tackle this global burden globally? What if we asked the same question about the climate of because you, which is as great a threat as COVID ever was. Not just in the future, but already in the present.
2: So are we going to learn these lessons? Are we going to let this disease be our teacher? Are we going to suffer into truth? I'm not convinced that we are, but I'm saying if we're to move forward, that's the attitude we have to take. Is how, what can we learn from our collective suffering?
1: That's very much true. It's uh, So... What I also hear is like the deep, I think one of the deep answers that you also gave right now is that if, if our suffering and problems will not fall prey to the repetition compulsion of the trauma, the original traumatization, which is splitting something off. And so going through our life, we try to split off what has been split off already much earlier. And so when you said like turning the difficulties into our teachers, that's actually a process of taking things back in, like integrating our past. And that's very powerful, and that's that's a great for example, that would be for me, one of the collective awakenings is if more and more of us practice just what you said right now, then we're already awakening because we become more and more whole and less and less fragmented. That's powerful.
2: And I would say also that like your work on collective trauma, like when you do one of your workshops or events. It's not just that a whole lot of individuals are in an isolated sense working on their trauma. It's that people are find great relief and liberation in recognizing their commonality with others. So, so all of a sudden the journey becomes not an isolated, um, lonely one, but becomes a joint journey. And and I mean that's just the teaching here. And that, that that's a teaching that has been around forever. But even as the crisis of globalized capitalism deepens and it casts its shadows more broadly across the whole world, more and more people are also waking up. You know, the situation as dire as it becomes, it also evokes its response uh, in in a healing sense.
1: Beautiful. Yeah, where I see the time is quite progressive. I don't want to stretch your time too much. I, I would love to continue because I always get very on fire when we talk because I feel so many similarities and it's so beautiful. Is there is there anything about your book, about anything that we didn't talk about that you, at the end of our conversation, want to still bring in?
2: It, it, it's only to emphasize that you wouldn't do the work I do. Sorry, you wouldn't work either. That's a good nice Freudian slip. You didn't do the work you do.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I would not have written this book. And you would not have written your book if we, don't, if we didn't each fervently know, not just believe, but know that healing is possible. And in order to accomplish that healing, we have to really come face-to-face with the depth and extent of the trauma in our world, not to despair over it, but precisely so that we can gain agency. So very often, when I do webinars or workshops, um,
3: people will make hopeless statements about themselves. Um, I can tell you that I used to believe,
2: I used to believe for a long time that I can help others but there's something in me that could never be healed. It was so deep and so early and so mm, ingrained that it was beyond healing. I don't believe that anymore about myself. I've never believed it about anybody else either. And so that we would not be doing this work and the people listening, whatever they may believe, they would not be listening if at least a part of them didn't realize that liberation is possible. So that's what I want to leave people with. And I hope they'll check out my book because everything I've ever learned pretty much is, at least everything I ever learned up to the point that I finished writing the book is. is (laughs) is What I keep learning, maybe we'll talk about next year.
1: Of course, I would love to, Gabor. And such a pleasure. It's great to find allies to do this collective work together. So it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.